is BJ Council. I view the world through the lens of having been followed by a white clerk as a child while shopping in a five and dime. I'm a retired police executive and own UN50, which gives guidance on surviving interactions with police. I'm Harmony Chavis, and I view the world through the lens of one of the most misunderstood and diverse generations in our nation's history. I'm a social worker and a believer of radical kindness and love as modalities of healing. My name is Andrew Council. I view the world through the lens of a generational camera phone. I wake up as a black male and go to bed as a black male. I am surviving this never-ending court case we commonly call life in the best way I know how. So thank you guys for tuning back in to you and five for another episode of you and five I hope everybody is doing well. There's a lot going on in the community. Uh, so um, just you and five O I think most of you, those of you who are new to this know that you and five was created to help people safely interact with law enforcement. Our primary goal we started in 2015 has always been still is and will be is getting people home. We are not really concerned about whether you like the popo, respect the popo. It's about you getting to the house. And that's what we're about. And then we have the podcast just to talk about police interactions that may be current. And then just talk about other things too: mental health, how that impacts educations, justice serve persons and, and how that all intertwines and kind of makes the conversation a lot bigger than just law enforcement. So we have Dr. Craig Waleed with us tonight and uh, we'll introduce him in a few minutes. Um, but the first thing, one of my co-hosts, Harmony Chavis, isn't here with us tonight. She had to work, which is, you know, got to make that money. And so I ain't mad at her. Uh, but I have my favorite nephew because you are my what? I'm the only nephew. <laughs> I'm the only nephew. So, yeah. So uh, Andrew is, is here. And the exciting news about Andrew is he will be graduating in a couple of weeks from UNCG Greensboro. So the whole family is so excited. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So how do you feel about that, Andrew? I'm counting down to the second. I'm ready for seven <laughs> o'clock. Um, five o'clock on May 7th and ready, ready to go, ready to be done. Ready, yeah. Uh, ready to go. Come on out into the real world and get to work. Yes. Man. How's that looking? Are you, are you have any good potential and stuff like that? Will you be able to get stuff? Kind of remind folks of what your major is and how you plan to use that as you walk out into your new journey. Yes, of course. Um, so I currently am studying communication and media studies um, and originally going into school. I had a journalism focus wanting to go into reporting. Um, but after various experiences working professionally, I have learned like I've tried to find a place where I could combine my creativity for um, my love for working with people. So I tried to find a job that I can do both in or a, a pathway to go with and that ended up being marketing um, and also media and um, creative design. So that's what I'll be doing after graduation. I've accepted a position working somewhere in Greensboro um, on a brand marketing team. So I'll be doing both. Wow. Congratulations. So, you, you know, you have to feel, feel, feel your on in about that later, but congratulations. I'm really happy for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So we have Dr. Craig Waleed that uh, uh, he and I have actually never met in person because of uh, COVID, but he is, I, I met him on in a meeting for the local reentry council here in Durham uh, virtually and heard him as he engaged. And then I also kind of did some research on him and was just really impressed with what the work that he's doing and, and also just who he is. And um, he's written a book that he's gonna hopefully tell us a little bit about. Um, 
but I think the the first thing before, uh, you know, I think what I want people to know that just to serve persons for you and follow is very important to me uh, to do the work with them as it relates to interacting with law enforcement. And Dr. Ali may disagree with this perception, but from a law enforcement perspective, we are, unfortunately, most justice served persons return to the community from whence they came and, and were or arrested. And so once they come back from being incarcerated, there is this interaction sometimes that happened that's not always, not necessarily, it's kind of business. If BJ happens to come back and the break-ins are going up, then my office is going to interact with BJ simply because that was my MO. And all I'm saying to that is, just because of that, the officers do not have to treat you any other way or any differently since simply because you happen to have done that before. You treat them with professionalism like you would anybody else. So it's important for them to understand that and also understand that they did not leave their rights at the gate. And those rights, just like everybody else, is still attached to them. So I just wanted to make sure everybody understand my purpose in, in making sure that the voices of justice serve and those that are doing work around that uh, have a voice in this space. That's very important to me. Um, Dr. Waleed, I'm going to let you go ahead and kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I'll ask you one a question that we usually ask our guests at the beginning. So thank you for, for saying yes to coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, BJ, for um, inviting me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you, um, Andrew, as well. Um, yeah, well, I'm new to North Carolina. I've been here um, just about maybe 10 months. I moved here from a small place in western New York called uh, Rochester, New York, <laughs> Buffalo, Syracuse area, Lake Ontario. Um, I was born and raised there. Um but yeah, I, I moved here with my family, my wife and my my two children, a nine year old and a 15 year old boy. Um, but prior to moving here, I had been out of prison for um, about 22 years, 21 years. Um, I served um, eight years in prison in New York State's prisons for violent offense. Um, I had a four to 12 year sentence, so I'd CR'd on it or did two thirds of that time which was eight years. Um, but during my term of incarceration, I realized um, just what I was not. Um, and I say that because for many years, I grew up with the misconception that black men were ruthless, uh, that we did things against the law, um, and that we really were not intellectual beings. And so if there was anything I saw for my career other than um, crime, it was probably working in a blue collar field, maybe in a, a factory or something. And I say that because the area I lived in was uh, chock full of factories. There was Xerox, there was Kodak, there was General Motors. Uh, and so there was lots of opportunities, but that industry was dying. And mm. so really, I didn't see anything, any prospects for myself um, other than crime. And I wow. say that, and I say that simply because I didn't have a, a consistent uh, role model in my life, though most of the people that came um, from my family or that were in my family or that still are in my family were pretty upstanding citizens. You know, though I, I grew up in a single parent home, um, I didn't have that guidance that I needed, that consistent guidance and in, 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 uh, mentoring. So at any rate, I fell victim to what was in the neighborhood, 
what was on, on uh, popular media. And so um, this is what I saw myself as that same image that is portrayed of black men um, in the popular media, as well as in the neighborhood, you know, the guys hanging on the block, selling drugs, doing drugs, drinking crime. So I figured, Hey, that's for me. Long story short, I got caught up into drugs, um, committed a violent assault, um, got sent away for an attempt murder and assault um, charge. And again, I did uh, eight years on that. But while I was in prison in New York State, um, I began taking on um, college courses. There was a uh, accredited college, the Canisius College. Again, they're, they're from the Buffalo area, but they were uh, doing an in-prison um, college program. So I began taking courses, um, ended up uh, just before I got out, earning an associate's degree from that program. And um, it was during that time, though, even before I earned the, the degree, um, I had began dedicating myself to doing something different than being an inmate or being a prisoner. Because as I mentioned, once I got locked up, I realized what I was not, which was, you know, a criminal, a thug, a hard nose. And um, I started spending a lot of time, I think, in, in part because prison is so harsh um, and it's very scary. Um, I spent a lot of time reading, trying to escape through the pages of books. And um, little did I know that was cultivating my intellectual abilities much more than I knew. Um, but from there, um, I began uh, reading for other men, some of their letters, their legal um, mail and things of that nature, because there was a very low literacy rate um, in the penitentiaries. Mm -hmm. um, also, I began um, working as a teacher's aide, helping people to begin studying for their uh, general education diploma, um, because, you know, I'd come in as a high school graduate, graduating from high school just before I got um, arrested. And so I had some of the basic fundamentals of academics already under my belt. But um, as I told you, you know, I earned this associate's degree um, in prison. Um, there were professors from the outside coming in to teach us. And I began to really look up to these people and some of the uh, civilian administrators of the prison program. And so um, I found that I was really good at learning and analyzing and teaching, you know, so. Um, that became my passion while I was in prison. And many of the people that I engaged with, they began to call me doctor and call me professor. <laughs> and I'm just like, come on, man. You know, I have right. a green suit like you with this, you know, this department number on my chest, just like you. But right. I really told myself I want to go to college when I get out. I didn't know what I wanted to go to college for, but I got out in 97 after eight years. Um, maybe a year and a half later, I enrolled in um, SUNY, which stands for State University of New York at Brockport College, um, enrolled in there, began developing relationships with professors, um, with some of the peers, many of whom were much younger than me, but mostly professors. Um, I ended up earning a, a bachelor's degree in health science there. And I started working back in the community that I came from, working with formerly incarcerated people people as a uh, substance abuse counselor and then as a um, reentry case manager. But one of the things that I started to realize is that there isn't much um, room for growth in the position that's, that I was filling as a substance abuse counselor, as a case manager. And the people who were supervising me, um, I really thought 
that I was just as smart as them, if not smarter, you know. And so I figured I needed to um, get my credentials up. So I went back to school and earned a uh, master's of science in mental health counseling. And um, I began teaching around that same time in the junior colleges. And then um, the program that I I graduated from with my master's of of mental health counseling, they uh, recruited me to come back and start teaching there. And so um, I continued to teach for a while in the junior college and at SUNY. um, And then eventually I got hired full time to work with first generation students at SUNY. Um, But at the same time, I think just before I got hired there, um, in 2018, um, I graduated from St. John Fisher College. Um, you know, I'm skipping over some detail, but the long story short is that after meeting all the professors on campus and, you know, politicking with them, talking with them, um, exchanging ideas with them, I realized that though I didn't have their credentials, um, these people were my peers, you know. And so, again, I wanted to, uh, I guess, buck the the ideal of what it means to be a formerly incarcerated person. And so that, for one, is why I went to school. But also, I went to school to um, increase my opportunity to earn a living, also to um, have greater uh, potential for accessing the type of work I wanted to do, which was higher ed, which was more academic, cerebral work. And then, you know, I think that the tertiary or maybe even the main thing was to really serve as an example for other people coming out of prison, people who are going to prison, people who were stuck in these cycles of bad decisions, addiction to uh, just be an unofficial role model of sorts to them, to let them know that you can change your trajectory. And so for me, changing my trajectory had a lot to do with pursuing higher education. And so I moved here to uh, North Carolina uh, late last year, just before the uh, the COVID outbreak. And um, since being here, um, I've landed a job working at um, UNC at Chapel Hill in the um, School of Medicines, uh, re-envisioning health and justice lab, where we're doing lots of research around health disparities um, that are impacting justice and violent people. Wow. That's a, that's a lot. You've accomplished a lot, my man. That's, that's uh, and I appreciate the fact that you said, you know, you're trying to make, and one of the main things is to set the example and also change the perspectives of yeah. other folks around you too, you know, that just don't make the assumptions. I mean, you're not defined by something you did once, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so people have this whole thing. I, and, you know, when I talk to some of the folks that are justice serves or, or, I'm, or you know, it's like uh, the only difference between me and you is I didn't get caught. I hear that a lot. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously. And I own that. I own that on a whole lot of levels. Yeah. Uh, and people need to. And I wish other people would just recognize that you just didn't get caught, boo. You just mm. didn't get caught. That's all it is. And um, you need to recognize that and stop looking at folks all sideways. So anyway, um, I think I'm going to ask you this real quick. And, and because like I said, I need to ask, the, uh, ask our guest. So you have lived through COVID. We all have, thankfully and blessfully. Uh, so having done that, who are you that you have survived COVID? You know, who is Dr. Waleed having survived this thing? Mm. Yeah, who am I? I'll tell you that I simply am. It's that simple. I am. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but at the, I guess to add to that, I am that which uh, thinks and feels and acknowledges the experiences that I've had wrapped in this physical form, which is known as my body. But ultimately, I am that which thinks and feels and is aware. And so that is really a formless, shapeless, colorless um, entity. I am emotion. I am cognition. Um, and I am that emotional cognition that continues to to uh, to grow um, based on the experiences that I'm experiencing in this uh, celestial form. Wow. Actually, that's probably one of the best ones I've heard so far. So thank you. Wow. That's I appreciate that. So, yeah, just being human and we 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 are and I am. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. I kind of you've written a book uh, called Prison to Promise, a Chronicle of Healing and Transformation. And I've you know read some of the stuff that you sent me. And you've also you hit on already because I had the question. It was like what what a black man should be. You know, you kind of already hit on that in, in your description. The other thing I want you to talk about briefly is you said you changed your last name. Yes. So kind of take us through that for a second and I because I got some other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And, you know, one of the uh, criticisms I got from one of my friends was you should have wrote about your name in your book and how how you changed it. Um, and I think that that that's very important. Um, but what the long and, and, and tall and skinny, should I say, of that is while I was incarcerated, um, I gravitated towards older men who were incarcerated. And this was maybe the first time I really had consistent, ongoing mentorship from men. Wow. And many of these men were old timers that had been in prison for 20 plus years. Some of them were not getting out, but they were full of knowledge, wisdom and understanding. And that was something that I knew I needed and wanted. And so some of the men that I spent time with, they were of Islamic or Muslim affiliation. And so we spent lots of time studying, um, reading, exchanging books, exchanging notes, um, just politicking. And uh, one of the guys christened me um, Akil Aswad Walid. So Akil Aswad Walid are Arabic words. Akil means um, he who uses reasoning well, intelligent. And so he told me, I'm giving you this name or I'm going to call you this if it's okay with you, because you strike me as a very intelligent brother from the time I met you. And he's watched me mature and grow over maybe the period of three or four years. It was Um, Aswad. Aswad means black in Arabic, because lots of our studies centered around being black or being a black man looking at the history and uh, the, the future trajectory of black people. And then Walid, Walid is Arabic for um, newborn baby or to be reborn. And so I wanted to hold on to my given name, which is Craig. Um, and so I took on those other names and legally changed my name to Craig Akil Aswad Walid, which means Craig is an intelligent black man who is born each day you know, or who is reborn each day. Wow. 
And then, you know, I was even more so um, open to that because growing up, I grew up in this single parent home and my mother had been married and divorced and she had continued to carry her former husband's name. And so when I was born, I was given his last name. My own birth father was really a no show. And so at one point I was thinking about changing my name to his name. But I was like, the heck with that, because he don't even claim me. But I don't want to carry this other man's name because he's not even my family. You know, he's a good man, but he ain't my people. And so once, you know, the brother uh, was like, look, man, this is the name I got for you. Um, I was open to it because, again, I also thought that it reflected who I am and who I want to be, you know, because I think it's very important that um at least for me, when I chose my son's names, I chose names. They were their Arabic names, but they're names that um, when people call their name, they are empowering them. And so I think that our name should speak of our characteristics, who we are or who we want to be. You know, and so my sons, just to deviate a bit, one of my sons, his name is Ismail Malik. Ismail means Allah or God listens or hears. Malik is king. And my other son, his name is Isa Muhammad. Isa is the Arabic word for Jesus. Muhammad, again, is another prophet's name. So when you speak my son's names, you are speaking power to them. So that's pretty much, I guess, the, the, the tall and skinny of all of that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Andrew, you got anything before I ask him some more questions? I just would, I was thinking to myself, I would enjoy one of your classes or taking a course on you just to, just to listen to the, some of the things that you talk about and just explain. That's all. Oh, thank you, brother. I miss teaching too. Um, I used to teach um, counselor ed, um, intro the counseling, group counseling concepts and um, interpersonal speech communication. Wow. Um, yeah, and used to love those classes because we would go deep and sometimes we'd go off of the curriculum and just really get into the, the meat of life. Right. Thank you, right. Thank you Andrew. All right. So speaking of getting into the meat of life, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I was looking at reading uh, your stuff. And one of the things that struck me is you recall, I think you said you recall showing signs of violent behavior at the age of five. And. Our, our producer and I were kind of talking about some stuff that have ha has happened recently, right? That's been going on, obviously Chauvin, Micaiah Bryan, I'll say, you know, I could go on. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I kind of want to, from your perspective and just your academic and, and mental health and counseling, when I hear that five-year-old behavior, violent behavior, right? So what I'm trying to figure out, and, and the discussion, I think, as Black people, we need to figure out, well, Micaiah Bryant, I'm not trying to, I'm not, the issue for me in this particular moment is not what the officer did. What I'm looking at is trying to figure out why does a 16-year-old believe that picking up a steak knife is a resolution to a problem? And, and how do we address that? How, how did the community fail that she thought that that, and, and not just her, but just, you know, our community, 
um, Mr. Isaiah Brown in Virginia who called the police at three in the morning, the same guy that supposedly took him home from a broken down vehicle. Mr. Isaiah Brown calls the police and the dispatch tape says he's saying, um, my brother won't let me into my mother's room. Why are we calling the police, the government, to come into our homes to fix arguments that we should be able to do ourselves? So I kind of, you know, from your perspective, I mean, because that, you know, why, why, what is a black man supposed to look like is hopefully solving his or her problems without having to call a government in or representative of a government who may end up arresting you or shooting you. So I guess I just would like to get some input as to those perspectives. When we're dealing with a 16 year old that says, you know, I'm gonna end this argument by picking up this knife. You know, how, where is it that we have failed as a community in helping, like you just said to Andrew, how to communicate? Where, where, where is that? And how is it that a five-year-old begins to have violent behavior? Yeah, and I think that's a very fair and valid question. And um, it's one that needs to continue to be explored. Um, but what I, I tend to think about is not so much maybe what's wrong with this young person, but more so what has happened to this young person. Right. You know, right. something has happened or continues to happen that has conditioned them to believe that this is the the, the choice of behavior or the option of behavior that they have to choose from versus anything else. And oftentimes, I think if you peel back the layers, you'll find that the child has been hurt or and or victimized at some point in their lives. I can say for myself, definitely at a very young age, um, because my mother couldn't watch me while she had to go work, she left me in, in the hands of other people who took advantage of me. And so at a very young age, I was sexually assaulted, you know, verbally assaulted, and I saw things that I should not have seen. And so I remember coming of age, not understanding why I felt the way I felt, but I knew that I had been violated and hurt and that I needed to make sure that I watched over myself. And so that was what I, I guess I chose as a way of protecting myself because I didn't know any other way um, from the age of five or six, not to mention again, you know, I think growing up when I grew up, this was around maybe the year 1975 or 1976. So we're coming right off the heels of the, the black exploitation movies and whatnot. And black right. is starting to get due um, in, 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 pub, uh, in mass media. But all the imagery of black folks in media were of um, violent uh, anti-heroes or, or heroes and sheroes or, or very um, lowly characters. And so, you know, again, uh, like a bass, I swallow hook, line and sinker this ideology that um, a black boy is to be rough and tough and willing to navigate and exact violence, you know? And so I think for many young black children, uh, uh, especially those young people, as well as older people who are growing up in impoverished, in marginalized communities, 
we're going to see more of this um, type of behavior. And I think that's simply because of the, the lack of resources and the need to, uh, I guess, almost scrape and, 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 and struggle for uh, some sense of survival. And then we know that in these very same communities, um, there's a high incidence of violence. And so not only violence, but um, people are witnessing violence at very young ages. Um, young people are also being, again, assaulted, not just physically or sexually, but also verbally. Right. Um, you know, and, and not just physical or sexual or verbally. You know, if I'm living in a poor environment, if I'm coming from an impoverished background, I am suffering um, some form of oppression and violence in and of itself, you know, violence, or should I say uh, poverty is violence, you know, not having resources is violence. And so all of these traumas, they pile up on people. And so what we are seeing, I think, essentially are trauma responses, you know, particularly, I'm sure other people are doing it too, but as we talk about our own black communities, our own black selves, I think what we are seeing are trauma responses. And if it's not from poverty, it's from marginalization, just from the, the larger community, because sometimes we have black folks who are coming out of very well-to-do backgrounds, you know, but all these microaggressions that they experience over their lifetime, you know, from white folks, other folks, even folks that look like them who are having lesser expectations of them, who are, who are maybe, um, putting impediments in front of them to make them work extra hard to, to reach success when their parents or they themselves have put themselves in a position where they thought that they could get success. All of these are traumatic events, you know, be they large or small. And I think that over time they accumulate, you know, it's like most depth the rapper said in, in his song mathematics, you know, he said, why did the one straw break the camel's back? Here's the secret. There was a million on the straws underneath it. It's all math. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Andrew, you got anything? There was a lot to unpack in what he just said. I, there was something that I was thinking about um, as he was talking. There's something that uh, uh, there's a theory that we talk about in my degree program called the cultivation race theory or the cultivation theory. Um, basically echoing what you just said about um, like students or just society and culture just see a certain image of um, a certain race identity or a certain um, subset of people. And we cultivate that in our own brains and the society culti cultivates that in their own brains. So it's like, we can't really blame like certain specific um, subsets of people for things or for like, people being violent or for other, other traits that are passed down from generation or through race. It's like the, the thought of it being cultivated um, throughout society is just something that I don't know what needs to happen to stop it, but it, it just cultivates through itself and it repeats itself all the time. Absolutely. So how do we, I mean, how do we do that? Uh, you know, as a community, what, what is it? I mean, we need to really get away from the popo coming in and solving all our problems because that, that, that ain't working clearly. Um, we, you know, popo need to just do what the popo do and not try to figure out um, how to come into somebody's house to, to figure out how to solve their marriage problems. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just not where we belong. Um, so how do you do that? And before you, you know, you talk about that. I want to go back to what you said that that's really for me. Kids living in these communities, some of these communities, seeing this trauma, you know, having to go to school the next day after they saw a body laying in the middle of the street and then the 
you have some level of, you know, the next day to have this kid to come in and try to do his or her work. I mean, come on now, we need to figure out how to recognize where these kids are and go, well, he probably didn't do his homework last night. You know, how, how you know, how do we have those conversations to, to help? And, and, and uh, there's nothing that nobody knows, but I guess, I guess just want your opinion on that. I mean, how, I mean, what's the conversation, you know, you know, what's the conversation around that? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a, another great question, BJ. And I don't think there's necessarily um, a panacea or a one size fits all for that. Oh yeah. You know, but I think what what would help um, for sure is that um, educators or care providers or whoever is um, an authority figure in this child's life who is outside of uh, their day to day reality to um, have empathy um, and have patience, you know. I think those things are important and maybe, um, and I won't even say maybe, but I know for certain, um, take the initiative to cultivate a relationship with the child. Um, one of the things that I know from um, my years of professional experience and academic experience is that the relationship is oftentimes the greatest motivator of change, you know? And so having a relationship with a kind, compassionate, sincere person, teacher, neighbor, um, police officer, for that matter, whoever it might be. Mentor. Mentor, yes. I think that that can really make a big difference in a young person's life. Yeah. You know, also um, helping that young person maybe gain some sort of exposure outside of their day-to-day reality. You know, it's like planting seeds. You know, all the time when you plant seeds, I think um, Jesus is known for the parable of of the husbandry man who is, <coughs> excuse me, uh, tossing seeds in the ground. And he says something to the degree that some of the seeds will catch, some of the seeds will get strangled by the thorns. You know, some will get burned out by the sun, something to that degree. I know I'm not saying it um, 100%, but I think right. folks who know the parable, they get it. And so it's the same thing. I think when we expose children who've been marginalized or who have lack of exposure to other alternatives, it's yeah. like planting seeds, you know, um, yes. we're the farmers, we plant the seeds and then we may not watch it uh, grow or germinate, but we planted the seed. Exactly. Um, so I think that that that's a big step. And then also when it when it comes to the Jakes, you know, to the Popo, to the five oh, you know, to one time, I think that they are involved in too many things. You know, yep. you a person with a gun and a badge um, answering for everything just about. It's almost like having a hammer as your only tool. Yeah. You know, my windows need clean. Hit it with the hammer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yep. clean. Hit it with the hammer. Right. You know? yeah. My stove ain't working. Hit it with the hammer. You right. know, yeah. that's just not going to work. And, yeah. you know, yeah. not for nothing. I, I saw these little kids um, a couple of weeks ago. They were hanging out. I mean, they were little, like maybe five or three years old. And they were like really close to the road. Um, and it didn't seem like they were around any houses. I didn't see any adults. And I was really concerned, but there were little girls. I didn't want to stop and get out the car. Maybe right. have somebody, you know, saying I'm trying to be mannish or fresh or, you know, yeah. children. Yeah. Um, but I was really um, concerned. So 
I struggled, um, but I ended up calling 911, you know. And so the lady uh, on the other end, she says, "Okay, well, we'll send an officer out. I said, is there anyone else you can send out other than an officer? She says, why? This is the police station you called. I said, I understand, ma'am. I said, you know what? God bless the family or the children when the officer shows up. She says, why? I says, because oftentimes when the police show up, things go south. Right. You know, things go south. You're right. And and <laughs> amen, brother. Uh, as far as the popo got too much, I mean, society, uh, the police chief down in Dallas who had some officers killed several years ago, he said, you know, you, the community or society has laid everything at the doorstep of law enforcement. And it's just not right. I mean, we go to stuff and we know we need another resource and a resource is either, you know, we ain't got no room, you know, or we ain't got no space. And so here we go. I mean, so you, you hit, yes, totally too much is being asked of the popo. So we got to figure out and I think that's what a lot of people, when they say defund, they're just trying to figure out what can we do so the law enforcement doesn't have to do right. I mean, take some of that military budget and, and aim it towards some sort of social wellness programs, you know, or social wellness responders or something to that yeah. degree. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you yeah. don't need a gun and bullets in a, in a flat everything. Package. Yeah, you, know, you don't. You don't. And you just in the community that in each individual community. That's what we talked. We did that. We did a presentation on defund, and and the thing is diversity. You got to do each each community is is that is as diverse as the world is, and so you got to figure out what's going to fit here. Because some folks might be, yeah, we're okay with that. So yeah, so yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is really really good stuff. I I just I guess that the main thing is just to have these conversations and have people at the table. So the kind of the one of the questions I ask as we get ready to close out is what what would you offer as to what would a compassionate judicial system look like? You know, if 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 you could say this is what I think a judicial system would look like and it we and you would consider it compassionate, right? So what would that look like for you if you were able to go, okay, that's a compassionate justice system. What does it look like? And why would it look like that? Yeah. And, you know, that's a great question. Again, you, you're coming up with some bangers. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, but I mean, those are some great questions. And I think more people need to consider these things, you know, and maybe sit down and have a beer and talk about such things, you know, or whatever they do when they're politicking. But I think a compassionate <laughs> justice system um, would really be less punitive to begin with, you know, because one of the things I think about is, you know, when we look at the history of the justice system, once this uh, um, tough on crime um, um, enactment or, or approach uh, started to be um, implemented, um, there was no more compassion. There was no more um, 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 patience. There was no more treatment. Um, the only treatment people got was brutality punishment, you know, and we know that, you know, if, if, if you kick a dog long enough, a nice dog, it's going to bite you. You know, if you take and, and, and if you take someone who isn't well to begin with and you treat them very harsh for an extended period of time, they're only going to get worse. And I say that because the vast majority of people who find themselves in prisons and jails today are one, mostly poor, 
two mostly um, undereducated, um, and three, um, many of them have mental health and other health challenges that the penitentiary, the jail, the prison only serves to exacerbate. So I think that if the justice system or the legal system, as I like to call it, because there is no justice, as Rich Pryor once said, when you look around, it's just us, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I really think that um, if people could be diverted maybe to treatment and, you know, again, reenacting um, 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 education educational um, opportunities inside prisons and jails. Um, I think that that might help turn the tide. You know, I was down in the uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, one of the um, libraries a couple of weeks ago where they have archives. And I was looking at some microfilm of an old prison newspaper from like the 1800s. And they knew this back then when they were doing jails and, um, I can't I can't really remember exactly what it said, but it said that, you know, education is, is, is the panacea to crime. You know, so if you educate a person, they'll stop doing crime. If you give a person um, adequate treatment and not subpar treatment like they do in many of these prisons, people might re return back to their their communities that are broken, but in better condition to maybe help heal and build their communities back up. You know, so I think that. This is what a, a, a just um, justice system would look like. Wow. I really appreciate that. And you're absolutely right, Andrew. I mean, I, that's, yeah, it, it, education is, is the key. Yes. Andrew, you got anything? Not necessarily. I had a question about um, some of the research that he has done in, the pre in like prior, but I can ask that after because it's not related. <laughs> okay. You know, if I want to, uh, if I could add on. Um, yeah, no, go ahead. Well, um, when we talk about education, too, I think it, it's so important um, to really think about the etymology of education. You know, it, it comes from this this Latin um, root, educere or educo, which really means to bring forward or, or to bring out that which is latent, you know, and so. I think people need great training so that they can earn for themselves and maybe begin to think different, but also they need to be educated in the sense that they need to get some sort of uh, therapy or training or teaching that will help them to tap into their, their um, natural proclivities and use those things to make their lives and the lives of others better. You know, for example, if you've ever been to a circus or a zoo or somewhere like that, and you see the bear, you know, doing tricks, or you see the seal doing tricks, you know that it's well-trained. It's well-trained, like someone who goes to school, but if they have not learned what their natural proclivities are, then they're uneducated, like these wild animals I just talked about in the circus or the zoo. If you release them in their natural habitat, they'll suffer because they have not been educated they don't know how to survive. And so I think that we have to learn who we are and what we are, what our potentials are, and how we can use those potentials or proclivities to add on to not only our lives, but the lives of those people that we live amongst and touch. Wow. Well, I mean, to me, and I may be, what that sounds like to me is recognize education can help you recognize what your walk is on this earth 
and what your journey is? Because based on what you said in the beginning, Dr. Wally, was you began to go, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it sounded like when you recognize this is what I want to do, it, it was like internally you recognize, your spirit recognized that. It was, you were educated because it was like, oh, I mean, your soul is satisfied, you know, and the work that I'm doing at UN50, I don't have a college degree, but it was like the journey was go to law enforcement and now here I am and this is satisfying my soul. And so education, I would like to kind of just reframe that. And it's just like finding out what you're here to do. What is your walk? And then figuring out what that looks like and how that passes out to the rest of the beings on this planet. Absolutely. Bob Marley sang in one of his songs, you know, he said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Yeah. Wow. I can't wait till we really have a real world again, Dr. Wally, so we can have a, a you know, lunch. You can buy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I ain't ashamed. I'm going to say it. you can buy. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy the first time. We get the next time. Yeah, I look forward to that. I would love for us to, you know, get together and yeah. politics, you know. Yeah, that's cool. And I, I definitely want us, to, I don't want this to be a hit and miss because the work that you're doing, I'm definitely interested in. And I also may be reaching out as I really try to dive more into trying to make my presence and, and my work, hopefully folks see the need in or around just to serve organizations and individuals. Uh, so maybe I may be tapping back onto you. So, Andrew, before we close out, do you have anything? Now that I can think, I just really enjoyed listening to this conversation. It was very eye opening. I felt like I was in a in a um, listen to a sermon because of how good it was. But I, was, <laughs> I really enjoyed listening to. It. Like I, I would, would, it's been a long time since I've been sitting in a like I haven't sat in a lecture since junior year. So it's been a, a while since I've gotten some good face to face. Well, screen to screen, I guess, good screen to screen education and just waking up in enlightenment. So I appreciate you for coming. I appreciate yeah. hearing that, Andrew. And, you know, um, really, man, um, I really see myself in a sense as a minister of sorts, but not a minister of, of any particular gospel other than the gospel of, you know, self-realization. Right. And, and so I, I really like to think that I come for um, the people who are outside of the reach of the church and the mosque and the ministers, you know. And, and, and to speak back to one of your earlier questions about some of my research, um, I'll keep I'll keep uh, BJ um, updated, but I'm currently working on a paper, um, some research that I did a while ago that's looking at the impact of emotional intelligence and how it helps formerly incarcerated people avoid recidivism. And wow. So, um, I, wow. I submitted the paper um, a couple of months ago and they sent it back to me. Um, asking me just to make a couple of adjustments in the document. And so this will be a um, a paper that will be uh, published in a um, peer-reviewed journal called um, Criminal Behavior and Mental Health. Wow. That That's sounds, cool. yeah, that, that sounds awesome. That sounds really awesome. Please share that whenever you can, whenever it's finished or whenever it's out to if you could, please, I would love to read it. I would love Absolutely. to read it. Absolutely. And um, yeah. in the meantime, you know, um, if you just plug my name into Google, you might have an opportunity to see some of the other podcasts I've been on and um, some other articles and things of, of that nature that have been written about my journey. Yeah. I sent them the stuff that you sent me so they would at least have an idea who our guests were. So um, he, hopefully he's had a chance to look at that. But, that, yeah, I, I, I appreciate your your journey, Doc. 
you know, and uh, putting it out here for us to to see and view and being the example, because that's that's what it's all about. It just, you know, I, I guess for me, um, just people, you know, I, I'm not. I guess I'm stumbling because law enforcement, sometimes when we roll up and I, I think for me, because of the way I was raised, we, we were always raised as to treat people fairly and properly, no matter what their lot in life was. So that's kind of how I operated in law enforcement. Yeah, I got to put you in jail, but why am I putting you in jail? <laughs> you know what? What you know, what's happening that I got to be putting you in jail because it's just bigger than that. You know what I'm saying? It's just bigger than that. So I appreciate I appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate the fact just talking about. You know, we all got to find out what we're supposed to do here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, what good is my life if I don't share my lessons, you know, with other people? Mm. What good is, you know, it it does me no good anymore if I just keep it to myself. You know, it's sort of like, you know, we are like the ants, you know, of, of the earth, you know, and we are better when we are together. And we are better when we support each other, just like the ants are, you know, the one ant don't really do a whole lot. But when that ant is with its whole organism, its whole colony, you know, they do amazing things. And so, you know, I want to be able to share my experiences with other people with hopes that I can help empower them and, and, and um, um, encourage them to move forward. Well, I'll, I'll definitely be pushing your name out there when I, you know, when I get in those spaces and I think that you're, you know, you could be a benefit to, to them. So trust and believe I will be pushing you out there in, in those places. And I hope the folks that are listening too as well will reach out to you. We'll have Dr. Waleed's contact information and his information uh, as part of the podcast when it airs. So people are interested in reaching out to him. All right. So, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Wally, for for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. I look forward to again seeing you and hopefully soon in real life. Uh, I appreciate you you, uh, hanging out with us. Andrew, you got anything to close us out with? Nothing. Not much. Just good to see. Good to see. I enjoyed this conversation. I really did. Cool. Thank you, brother. And you can find me on Twitter, Twitter at Craig Wally. Twitter me at Craig Wally. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Glad you said that. And I need to start asking my guests that. So you just gave me something I need to do. I got to write down. I always say that. So, yeah. So thank you very much. Absolutely. So, as, yes. Thank you. So always, as I uh, hope everybody is safe and, and well, and uh, hopefully you'll continue to listen to us uh, on the podcast. We also can be viewed if you just kind of want to go, what does BJ look like? You can see us on our YouTube channel. So as always, stay safe, stay well. Peace. Peace.